brain health. It's something we all take for granted until it's threatened. One day, you're just going down the road, living your life, and out of nowhere and without your knowledge, your own immune system begins to attack your brain, creating a state of inflammation that is building under the surface until it reaches a critical mass. You are under siege with horrible delusions that your brain assures you are real. You can't think straight. You have gaps in your memory. You're struggling to piece it all together. And you are now, well, the new you, a misunderstood medical mystery. This is the compelling story of our first ever I Care For Your Brain podcast guest, R. Rose Bridey, a brave, smart advocate and survivor of a condition called anti-NMDAR encephalitis. In the next hour, Bridie will share her story from symptom onset to diagnosis to treatment and how she continues to blossom as she learns to live alongside this complex brain health challenge. Anti-NMDAR encephalitis is an autoimmune condition, meaning for some unknown reason, her own immune system began to make antibodies against her brain. We're talking about the immunoglobulin antibodies, and they run up against the NR1 subunit of the anti-N-methyl-D aspartate receptors. These receptors are most commonly found in the limbic system of our brain and cause a constellation of challenging, painful, and often poorly understood symptoms that are primarily cognitive and emotional. Because the limbic system houses our emotional system, the acute presentation of this condition is often behavioral. There are no specific set of symptoms, but we most commonly see psychosis like hallucinations, mania, and paranoia. These symptoms rapidly appear within days to weeks in people with no prior psychiatric disorder. Oftentimes, people with anti-NMDAR encephalitis are admitted to the psychiatric inpatient unit and can spend weeks, if not months there, searching for answers and relief. And this is exactly what you're gonna hear happen in Bridie's experience. This diagnosis draws our attention to a very real problem that continues to happen to too many of you in the brain health community. That is when the healthcare system adds an additional layer of distress called iatrogenic symptoms. This means that the person's interaction with the medical system also becomes a cause or a reason for worsening of symptoms. As you will learn, this condition often falls in the cracks between neurology and psychiatry, with far too few providers bridging that gap. This often delays a correct diagnosis and treatment, which is critical in anti-NMDAR encephalitis because early diagnosis and prompt immunotherapy treatment often dictate long-term outcomes. Examples of iatrogenic symptoms in the brain health community look like not being understood, being pigeonholed without a comprehensive workup because you're judged to be having a mental health crisis, being interacted with in an objectified way, and being dismissed. Now, this is not to say that our healthcare systems are not without their heroes and their angels because they are there too. Brain health requires a unique and sensitive approach that addresses a set of human needs that lies between the most tender part of ourselves, the physiological, the psychological, the cognitive, and the social. 
Despite over three quarters of adults with a neurological condition reporting that their mental health worsened following their diagnosis, over 60% report that their medical providers never asked about their mental well-being. The best brain health care happens when expertise comes from both the doctor with our academic and clinical training and the lived experience of patients. Valuing the contribution of both kinds of knowledge, the kind that comes from books and the deeply personal, is a necessary starting point for more humane care. This type of collaboration requires that medical providers truly listen to a patient's story and want to know what it is like to be that person living with that brain. So we invite you in to listen as Bridie and I, board-certified neuropsychologist Dr. Karen Sullivan, try to do just that. I loved my time with Bridie, and I think you will too. This is the I Care For Your Brain podcast. All the way from Australia, huh? Uh, indeed, indeed. At coffee time. And you're oh just my have gosh. you you're you're having pre-dinner drinks, yeah? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, you know me. You know me. <laughs> Friday, my name is my name is Karen, Dr. Sullivan, and you are the first guest on the I Care for Your Brain podcast. Fabulous. What a, what a privilege. Well, you know what? The truth of the matter is, is you have a story to tell. I already know this about you. And I hope to learn from you and hope to give you some insight from my neuropsychology brain. So what I want to do on this podcast is really have two experts come together. So the person who has the lived experience of a brain health challenge and a neuropsychologist to have an enlightened, educated conversation about what this has been like for you, your shoes and my shoes, and, and hopefully just get somewhere in terms of your well-being. But what I really hope is that other people who are living with your same condition can listen in and feel validated and maybe get some ideas from our conversation. Fabulous, fabulous. Right. Because okay. we have a long way to go, wouldn't you say, in the brain health community with listening to patients more? Oh, Karen, I can't, <laughs> I can't tell you how far, how far it needs to, you know. Oh. Yeah, the road, the road is a very, very long one, and and they picked on the right person when they picked on me because now I'm not only educating myself, but I'm educating the professionals full time. That's it. Oh, I love it. So tell me and everyone else listening, what is it that your brain has had? What is your unique brain health challenge? Okay. Um, the name of it is anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Um, the short name is autoimmune encephalitis. Mm-hmm. Yes. And as we're talking, I'm just going to take down some notes so I can kind of help myself put everything together. You know, the first thing that stood out to me with this diagnosis is you have the distinction of being literally one in 1.5 million (laughs) because it is such a rare condition. But within the world of these encephalitis, these limbic encephalopathies, this is the most common one. So you actually kind of have your feet in two camps. Yeah. And so the first thing that I think of when I think of your diagnosis is the harrowing journey too many people have 
to be correctly diagnosed because so many medical providers still have a very hard time teasing apart neurological and psychiatric. And when something in the brain presents with psych symptoms, all too often, when we find our most patients who have your diagnosis in the psych ward. And so my, my first point of interest is your journey in that initial process, your first symptoms and how you actually got diagnosed. Cause I have a feeling it's, it's not a, it's not a quick. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's not indeed. Um, so I, I, you know, I'll try and give you the abridged version. If it's taking too long, you need to tell me. Okay. Um, um, I have a, I, I, up until, up until 2015, I was a very, very healthy person. And then I got a breast cancer diagnosis. You know, when and... you sent me your meds, I, I looked up all your medications because being in Australia, they have different names that I'm used to. And I saw that you, okay, so I assumed you had breast cancer. So that was in 20, yeah. that was in 2015. That was in 2015. And what you would have seen was the hormone stripper, the XMS stain that I keep on because it was a estrogen positive breast cancer, which once again is a good one to have. Okay. Um, so after um, a lumpectomy, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, I was on a really good trajectory to just being normal bridie again, completely healthy, living our life of, you know, fun in Australia, as you know, everyone in Australia has fun. So, so, so that, that was my first ever illness. And, you know, at the end of it, I thought, okay, we're over and done with until one day, mm. um, I won't say out of the blue because, because there was sort of a precursor to it where I was, I felt tormented as a person. Um, you know, I don't need to give, to go into those details because it makes the story longer, but mm. basically I was bullied to a degree mm. and and one day I just, it was seriously over over days, not weeks. Yes. Um, I, I went crazy. I mean, that's yes. the only way to yes. describe it. Yes. I um, decided that my husband was a pedophile. Oh. I, yeah, I know it was, it was, you know, in hindsight, now that I can see it so clearly, I, I just see that it was not just torture for me. It was that's torture true. for every single person around me. Um, not, not only that, but, but I was looking for, I have a, I have a background of, of, um, bookkeeping. And so, and so my, my brain went into, okay, I need to discover this ring of people who are doing this. I need to go through every single thing of my husband's, all the paperwork, all the computer work and everything. But at the same time, I had a mind that was failing me. So I couldn't actually remember. I couldn't remember much at all. Right. I was sleeping maybe two hours a night, um, you know, and I thought I was completely sane. I thought that this was, oh, right. my goodness, I've come across something really, really bad. And I, my job is to resolve it. I mean, it's funny now. It wasn't funny then. No, it was definitely well, not funny then. That's, that's so. Psychotic symptoms happen across a spectrum and what really distinguishes them is the level of distress they cause and the level of insight someone has. If you even had a 1% chance of thinking, maybe this isn't true, it would have been different because you could go to someone you trust. But the whole idea is, 
you know, what's really happening in this condition is your body has created antibodies against these very specific receptors in your brain and they basically fill them up and where you have those most receptors as you probably know is your limbic system which is really the emotional center of the brain but also you know the hippocampus is right there which is our memory center so what you described really feels like it fits the stereotypical first symptoms where people almost look manic there's a, a need for, right? And this is why so many people wind up in the emergency room and then go to the, the psych ward because they just look like they are agitated and racing and delusional. So how long, Bridie, did you stay in that state? So I was there for about, I was probably there for about four weeks before my husband said, oh, we're not getting on very well. I think we should go to a marriage counselor, uh -huh. which is our only you know it's like oh goodness okay because uh you know we'd been on such a such a smooth trajectory in our relationship and in our life since then up until then and then suddenly you know so we didn't know so we made an appointment with a marriage counselor and and at the same time my kid my eldest daughter is a psychologist and so at the same time she said Mom, I think something's wrong with you. I think you should go to your GP, which is an Australia general practitioner, and maybe get a referral. You know, you might need to be referred on. So Tony and I went to the um, marriage counsellor and we made an appointment. We Our GP is three hours away. So, you know, you had to really make, make a point of going to him. Yeah. And so we did both in parallel and the GP said, I've known him, I've worked for him, I love him. And he said, Bridie, you, you, you're really sick and we need to get you into a psychiatrist very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, you know, go ahead. And so he made that referral and I think we were there within a week. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, we had the marriage guidance counsellor who said, um, Bridie, I don't know you, but I think you have a problem and I think that it's good that you're going to the psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we just sort of muddled on with lots of fights, lots and lots of screaming. I mean, I'm a, I'm a gentle yes. soul and yeah. I, turned into a, I turned into a horrible, horrible screaming person. Yeah. Well, Bridie, you bring up a very poignant part of what you've been through and what I have empathy for as a neuropsychologist. And that is really the interface between brain and person brain and soul and how is it after psychotic episodes brain attacks whatever how is it that we kind of integrate who were we when we were acting that way versus who is the real me and and, and what I'm really sad about is that who is having those professional conversations with patients I don't necessarily hear this happening in neurology clinics. Um, and so that to me is, is the beauty of what neuropsychology has to offer the world is that we can hold space for those very tender questions because I, I would imagine. So, so, you know, what's very important in any brain health challenge is it's not everything, right? You came into this with a life history and you came into it with a cancer diagnosis. And so that's another thing kind of as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm just thinking about medical post-traumatic stress disorder 
And, and when, right. And when you say like, that wasn't me, I think that almost is at the heart of it. Right. So how, so do you have a period of time that you don't remember? I'm going to, assume- I, 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 yeah, I actually yeah. don't. Um, I have, I, you know, I've only determined this. Nobody's told me this, but I, I consider that I've got what they call a form first version of anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Um, either that or I was just really, really lucky. Um, I'll just race through the rest of it. The rest of it was that I went, no, I would say also at that point, no, actually it wasn't then, it was later that I met you on the internet. It was later, I'll, I'll bring that in later. Um, so I met with the psychiatrist who was very, very quick to put me on antipsychotics and tell me that, or not really tell me, but tell Tony that I had a schizophreniform, is that how you say it, yeah. disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, she actually brought home a, um, she gave Tony a piece of paper that 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 sort of summarised the problem. And when you read it, it looks like, yeah, that was my problem. I mean, you know, it was point A, point B, and, yeah, I had that, I ticked that, I ticked that. Right. Um, um, but in my heart, you know, and maybe this is what you were saying then about um, the insight. In my heart, I knew that I knew that you know the people that we'd had that I know that have had that disorder in the past, they sort of had it when they were younger, and then it reared its ugly head again. Yes. Um, you know, I sort of had a little bit of background with it, and I thought. I, I don't think in my heart I didn't fit it. And right. and so part of my, you know, book work and, and all this filing and everything, I then started to do the um, research mm-hmm. on, oh, no, no, I'm getting the order wrong even then. Um, well, I started looking into schizophreniform disorders and then it was so lucky that, well, in the meantime, the marriage counsellor, we kept going to her every week and she she eventually sort of said Bridie I wonder if I wonder if this psychiatrist is a good match for you she Mm -hmm. said I think you're getting angrier than when I first met you Mm -hmm. and that maybe maybe you need to change practitioners there you know not not get rid of the psychiatrist but well maybe this isn't playing out for you Right. And it's kind of a, a politically correct professional way of saying, <laughs> hey, mm. maybe they're not fully appreciating what's happening. Therefore, your treatment isn't really ideal. Exactly. Right? Exactly. I like, and I found, sorry. Oh, pardon me. I like what you said earlier, too, about, you know, because there is so much overlap with what you have with psychotic disorders, it's like, what can we try to promote in the public as a distinction that would raise a flag. So one of the things is the a first time psychotic episode in I mean were you in your 40s when this happened? Your 50s? Darling, I was in my I was in my 50s, yeah, mid 50s. So, so usually yeah. when we think about Actually- yeah, 60s, oh. very close to 60. <laughs> when, when we think of thought disorders and psychotic disorders, I mean, you think of kind of the classic is 18 to 21, 18 to 22, right? I mean, you were fully functional. Um, it, it, okay, so how long? So one of the things, because I know one of your questions for me is kind of long-term and your questions are very, very interesting. And we're going to get into them kind of, how do I manage some of these residual 
psychotic symptoms when my brain lies to me and tells me, you know, things aren't on the up and up. I think that's a very interesting question and I've looked into it and I'm Mm -hmm. excited to tell you my thoughts, but how one of the prognostic indicators for who survives this well is how long it took you to get that first immunotherapy. So how long, yeah, how long would you say it was? Um, We had COVID and COVID just shut down the system. So I'm there. It ended up that the psychiatrist, I have to tell you this bit because it's an absolute gem. The psychiatrist said it was in January 2019 and 2020. And the psychiatrist said, I'm going off on holidays. Um, Here's a phone number to ring if Tony needs the cat team. I don't know if they have cat teams in America, but they're the rescue team for when you go really, really crazy. And, and I said, oh, that's great. Thank you so much. But please, could I have all the information you've collected on me so that when the cat teams arrives, Tony's got something to give them? And she said, she said, sure, sure. And so she printed them all up for me. And, of course, the first thing I did then was go home and trawl through this paperwork. I, I, I looked up every single word that I didn't know, and there were thousands of words I didn't know. It was a language I didn't speak. Oh boy, we there you just you're popping on all my my heart driven topics. So so one of the things I have many things that kind of bother me about the modern brain healthcare system. So one is the level of jargon that is contained in medical records, but maybe even more than that, Bridie, is what it contains that is not communicated to the patient. So one of the biggest gifts I know I give my patients is I'm just a good reviewer of medical records. I go through it with a fine tooth comb. I mean, but you find things that are as significant as there was actually a small stroke or, you know, they found this in your blood work. So is that where you kind of found the essential hints? Oh my God. That's where it was one essential hint. It was, it was NMDA antibodies positive no so so I rang her it was the same day and I thought well she hasn't gone on holidays yet so I rang her and I said hang on you told me all my blood work was normal and this is positive um how come how come you didn't tell me that it was a problem and she said it's not a problem you've had you've had breast cancer oh my god so 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 I left I left her at that and I said, okay, thank you so much, you know, armed with that bit of information. And then I really went down. And right. there wasn't, you know, there was there's not a whole lot. There's a bit more now, but there yeah. wasn't a whole lot on the internet then. Right. Um, you know, it's only three years ago, but that three years, it's there's, you know, it's compounded and there's there's a bit more now. Um anyway, I found some articles and one of them mentioned the word teratoma. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. When I had, you know, one of my ultrasounds for one of my checks, um, they mentioned the word teratoma. So I then went down that line and and realised that that if I did really have a teratoma, it might well be linked to the anti-NMDA encephalitis and that, you know, if it, that's, you know, what I had, Um, So I really needed to go to an obstetrician-gynaecologist. I really needed to go to a neurologist. um, And I really needed to try to stay sane 
while I was doing that. Because oh, if I approach God. these guys speaking like I spoke, which was really fast and yes. really jumbled and, you know, even when I took the computer to the police when Tony was met to be a pedophile, they couldn't even get into the computer because I couldn't remember the right. um, password. <laughs> so, you know, this is a... But, like, yeah, this is a... You're operating with this basically inflamed brain that has significant memory problems, has significant executive function, can't really follow the plot, but yet you are advocating and scheming and plotting to get yourself the right diagnosis. Oh my and, God. And and more importantly, I don't have my best friend, Tony, next to me doing it. Tony saw me through breast cancer. Tony saw me through the birth of our children. You know, we had been best friends for, you know, so forever, for 40 something years, you know, and suddenly, no, I couldn't ask Tony a thing. And then when I asked my, my next best friends, who are my three sisters, they did everything out of a filter of Bridie's crazy. She's finding this bloody stuff on the net that is completely crazy. She's, you know, Anyway, end of that story. I then found the neurologist who, with that um, with that diagnosis of the positive, just serum at that point, just blood, oh. um, he said, right, we need to put you into hospital immediately. But in Australia, there's the public system and the private system. And I knew that if I was going to start this journey in the private system, which is what this fellow was advocating for, it would have cost us all the money we have. Mm. You know, it, it just, you know, I knew I knew from reading the tests I'd have to have and it just, it was not affordable for us. So yeah. I said that to him. I said, please, I'm going to go to the local hospital and endeavour to be treated there under you. Mm. And he, he said, okay. And then with COVID, six months later... Oh my God. But in that six months, so the, the the neuro people dropped me for six months, but in that six months I had enough wherefore thou to organize in the private system, getting my ovaries out. Um the the pathology on that was was innocuous. It was it was not clear. I'd had three ultrasounds that used the word teratoma. And the pathology said, well, there's some benign cells there. We don't know. It's like, oh. So you you so, never you never got an answer on that. And I didn't get an answer on that. I didn't. And and you know, some I mean, yeah, there's no point me diagnosing myself. So I won't even go down that that road. Well, turns it turns out you're actually good at it. So you well, <laughs> you might be on to something. But you know, that's that's one of the things that um is probably the clearest with this condition is if you have an ovarian teratoma and you get it removed, well, that's almost half your battle. So it really did matter because it could really be the source of why you were having this autoimmune reaction. So that's, uh, oh my gosh. And so that now I think where I'm at in your story is like maybe nine or 10 months and you still haven't gotten your immunotherapy yet. Would that be fair? Correct. Oh my Yep. God. That would be, oh that would be completely correct. So in um pretty pretty quickly after that I you know I ended up sending the fact that I'd had my ovaries out to this to the um you know who I now say the gorgeous the gorgeous neurologist because yeah. they ended up looking after me um 
uh, sent, and, and I think he said to himself, oh, goodness, this girl's really onto it and we need to, you know, even though it's COVID, we need to help her. Yeah. And yeah. so I ended up getting into the hospital, getting a, uh, like a t- spinal tap, a, um, what like, do they call it? For cerebrospinal fluid, like a, yeah, spinal tap, yeah. they call it sometimes. Yep, yeah. yep. Um, and, and that showed positive for NMDA antibodies and so he he immediately put me into hospital, into the public hospital, into the public system, where then I got very first, I got IVIG and I got, um, you know, the stuff that calms the IVIG as it's going into system. I stayed there, I think, for four or five days having that treatment. I tolerated it well came out thinking, oh, well, you know, I wonder when things are going to get better. In the meantime, we took me off the antipsychotics, knowing that they were not going to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, thing, things got things got quietly better at home. I, I you know, I, I became a calmer person. I was much more interested in the grandchildren. You know, life sort of settled and, and it was lovely. And then... I think the order of it was that they then said that that I could, no, I know, maybe six months later. So my life really settled. And I, th- I remember Tony saying, we've got the old bridey. She's just a little bit different. Aww. Yeah. So, so you know, I was, I was back there and having good relationships and doing good things until the day that I said to Tony, it's back. And, and I was, I was able to actually, you know, to recognise it immediately, things things like um, not just thoughts, but, you know, I've got some physical symptoms that I was able to say I need to get my... I need to get my antibodies tested immediately. So I just went to the GP to do that. It takes three weeks. They send it off to Queensland State in Australia and then it came back and, sure enough, it came back positive. So then... They, they were listening to me at this point. They, you know, I, I was pretty well on call and yeah. I said, I, I've got it back. Here's the proof. And they said, okay, there's, you know, we're, we're really struggling with COVID here, but we'll endeavour to fit you in. And, of course, as the weeks went on and they weren't able to fit me in, it wasn't that they didn't want to, they just weren't able to. It got to the point where Tony then had to advocate for me and he had to go into them and say, this woman is turning crazy and it's your fault. Oh my God. Well, it, that's what it comes down to many times. I mean, people, one of the things I'm sure you learned is to be your own best advocate, which through the I Care for Your Brain program, and that's really why we have a presence on social media and have done these lectures for five years is just to give people the tools to go in to be on equal footing when they have a conversation with the neurologist to, to know how to, because we, we still have this hierarchy, right? We're the patient and they're the doctor in the white coat. And so then how long were you actively symptomatic before, before you could actually get yeah. in? Um, that was probably another four months, but it oh, came back a, a lot a lot gentler you know I didn't I didn't get to those absolute extremes I didn't I didn't make stuff up I just you know I, I just basically I got I've got I was in the position where I could say to myself that's not a good thought don't say it out loud right well you know yeah, that- so I was managing it right well you know when we get to kind of the here and now and what your ongoing challenges are you know, that that's really at the heart of what I want to talk about is 
how do you live alongside these ongoing mm-hmm. brain health symptoms? And in your case, psychosis. And sure enough, you know, one of the very best ways is to really be mindful about that very first symptom and to then go and talk to your trusted doctors, your trusted people to really figure out, you know, what is that first, some people who have psychotic spectrum disorders will say, my sense of smell gets incredibly tuned in. The world just seems a little brighter. You know, my thoughts start to race a little bit. I I get a little physically restless and agitated. For you, it's your heart? Mm, Yeah, definitely. Definitely my heart. My heart begins to race and and goes into uh, AF, AF, what's that? Oh, atrial Uh, fibrillation. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So so when that happened, though, so so what I've read is about 12 to 24% of people in the first two years do have a relapse. And just like you, it is not never as severe as it was the first Mm -hmm. time. But is is this how you've so have you just had one relapse, Bridie? I, I had the no, I had the one relapse and then eventually they said, okay, um, what we should do now instead of just just giving you that bolster, they gave me another bolster and they said, however, let's keep your antibodies at bay by giving you the IVIG monthly yeah. and let's put you on a drug, an Australian drug, don't know if it's American, called mycophenolate which is an immune suppressor um, and that will that will tame them that should be able to tame them and so I was on the mycophenolate for six months um, and the IVIG for six months and then the doctor then the neurologist said okay we're going to try it down the IVIG and just see if the mycophenolate's winning at this point mm. and so he did that and I said Nah, it's not winning. It's coming back. So that was that was number three. Oh. Um, but once again, completely manageable this time. Completely, yes. you know, the, I, it was just a phone call, and the next one was back, and the next dose was back up to my maximum and fine. And only now, and this is what this is. Uh, it was November nineteen, so November nineteen, twenty twenty one, twenty two. Wow. Four years later. Um, they're saying that I could go on a drug called rituximab. Yes, um, which is basically which, chemo. Which is basically chemo, and they've tried to avoid it because yes. you know I got high cholesterol, I got I got AF, I got high blood pressure, I got you know I've, I've had all these things that obviously my brain's in charge of. It's not because I'm you know well sort also, of punishing myself. Right, right. But you've also had chemo before. Exactly. So they were trying to avoid it at all costs. And and they still could, you know, they they said, you know, you can just come to hospital once a month. But but I've got this feeling that, oh, my goodness, if I have the rituximab, maybe everything will settle. Well, and if I had to just go by the research that I've reviewed and the two patients in my 10 years of independent practice, I've had two patients who've had this. And both of them, once they got to the second line treatment, which is how we think of the uh, rituximab, they that was when they did finally clear up completely. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I need to do it. And he promised me it in December last year, and then COVID got bad, and so now he's promised it to me in January. But it's what it's the 18th, and I haven't heard from him yet. But but I know that I will hear from him, and I know that. 
that, that I'll embrace it. It means that I won't see my grandchildren for that whole first term of school because he said you just can't be around too many germs. Um, and, and I will now do whatever it takes. I'll turn myself into a hermit to potentially be cured. Oh, my goodness. So how do you hold within yourself the ongoing symptoms versus the adjustment to the symptoms. So in case that question isn't clear, I would imagine there's a certain amount of kind of anxiety and agitation that goes along with both sides of that, right? I mean, there's, I know the brain side because I, you know, I read the books and I know the science. In yeah, the, the 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 living side. Yes. So my yes. yeah, my living day to day now. Although, you know, uh, I mean, you know, apart from the people that are going to listen to this, um, I keep very very close to my heart so that I don't upset anyone. You know, my my whole my whole support network have been through such a rough time that if I can keep it to myself, then then I won't you know, I won't hurt them any further. So that's full in my mind. And and what it looks like, um, full disclosure here, what it looks like is I I just remain a very, very suspicious person of Tony. Right. Despite the fact that right. Tony can say, I love you every day of the week and live I love you every day of the week and give me his telephone to look through if I need it and not say a word and and do things like sit on the same side of the table as me so that he's not hiding anything when he's looking at his computer. I mean, he's got so many strategies that that are that are trying to be very helpful, but the the crazy bridey or the you know the, the little bit of crazy bridey that's left goes, oh, yeah, you've just looked that up now. Let me link that towards the person that I think you're having an affair with or let me, you know, let me find out what that person's doing so that I can see why you have posted that song. You know, I mean, there's, it just goes. So so kind of making unnecessary, overvalued links to different things. Yeah, yeah, you know, you, you we say unnecessarily and overvalued, but then my my brain sometimes says yes. what I'm seeing is actually real. Oh, for and sure. and maybe right. maybe this is really happening. No, and how sure. will I how will I ever know one way or another? That's right. And, That's right. Yeah. Right. And and, and, and go on. Yes. I think part of why we're a little bit talking on each other is we've got this giant delay from North Carolina, United States to Australia. So, uh, and I think we're both very um, excited and eager to to talk, uh, but I, I hope it doesn't come across as stepping on your toes in any way, because I'm, I'm, I'm in total awe of you. So, right. So, so what I mean by that is when you are not having symptoms, which in your case means having some degree of psychosis, then you can probably see that the ideas are overvalued and kind of unnecessarily linking. Can, can you kind of see that when you're less symptomatic? Yes. Yes. I go, yeah. it's like a roller coaster. Mm. Yeah. And a lot, and- of, a lot of autoimmune things are 
very uh, up and down. And we don't really understand why, you know, the, the immune system and inflammation are probably the next big frontiers in brain health science. And, and that's why, you know, you're this amazing uh, informant who can come back and kind of tell us what it's like, you know, to be in the middle of that storm. So it, it just reminds me though, of like all, all thought disorder symptoms, one of the things we we definitely know is that there's some degree of frontal lobe dysfunction. And if we just take schizophrenia as, as one example, there's kind of a lack of gating or filtering in the frontal lobes that happens where those people, unfortunately, are not able to kind of dampen down the response. And so everything kind of feels important. And when you have a healthy brain, what you don't realize is how critical that gating system is, right? How a billion things are coming at you in any given moment, but when your brain's healthy, it can put brakes on all over the place and you can just stay like this. But when you have some degree of psychosis, my understanding is that you're kind of wide open. Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with that picture completely. That that was me, and the, during the really worst times, my brain would would live like that for hours at a time, and then suddenly say, "Sleep, go to bed, go to bed, go to sleep," and and I would just have to rest. I knew that I was improving when I don't have day sleeps anymore. So so right. you know, although sometimes it's jumbled, it's it's not that onslaught. At which, all. which which really I think would classify as neurofatigue, which all roads, all brain injuries kind of lead to that same road, which is this kind of bone exhaustion, um, right? Where it, it, a nap doesn't really cut it. I mean, it, it, it's just, if if someone's listening, like if you've even just had the worst flu of your life, or if you had COVID, it is your body, it, it's all inflammation. Your body basically wants to put you to sleep so the immune system can focus on the most important things and, and kind of bat away these other things. And and Tony, I, I actually, during that, that early period, I actually um, reported to the whole world that Tony was drugging me. That's what it felt like. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. But that's what it felt like because I'd never experienced. So that. I want I want to just backtrack and, and get your insights and expertise on that very first time, Bridie, when they did the spinal tap and they came back and they said to you, it is, you know, anti N methyl D aspartate limbic encephalitis receptor antibody of these giant words. What was your thought process when that was confirmed? And, and you weren't crazy. This wasn't psychiatric. This was brain. I was, I was the most relieved I have ever been in my life. I was the most validated. Is that the word? Validated that I've ever been oh. in my life. And, and, you know, it, it was almost like, when I when I got cancer, I, I got a bit crook before it and, and having the cancer diagnosis was, oh, thank goodness, I've got a diagnosis. This is great. Now we've got something to work on. And it was that feeling 100 times more yeah. because suddenly everybody's attitude to me changed. I was just going to say that it, it had to be two things, maybe two. It's the way people interacted with you and then the stigma, the self-doubt that comes along from this antiquated idea that brain and body and self are somehow 
all the same, right? It, it's so yeah. tell me, so how do you think, how did people's treatment of you change when it became brain and not psych? Um, it was interesting because I found myself feeding them information and using the word neurologist a whole lot more than I ever <laughs> used the word psychiatrist. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, as you say, my, um, my blinkers were wide open, so or my filter was wide open, so everybody heard everything, but I made sure that the whole world knew that this was a, that this was a chemical thing and yes. that this was a, you know, it, it just, yeah, I, I and how yeah, do how do you how do you think Tony and the girls and your sisters how did how did other people receive this? I mean, did, it's I, it's you know they they were never ever doing anything I have to say you know out of out of maliciousness sure but but getting getting that news every I turned from a a useless body to a brilliant researcher. You know? and oh and God. you know and right. i and i loved it but i really wanted oh, to yell at them and say hey guys this was me all along and oh you just God. needed to listen to me and oh so and so i had that feeling for the very first time in my life because i'm the fourth born i've had you know this great care absolutely and tony my husband is also the last born in his family so our families have nurtured us and looked after us and for the first time when I got sick, I actually became an island. There was nobody. And so and so in that diagnosis, I got my village back. Yes. Oh my God. That's mm. so eloquent. That is so eloquent mm. on so many, on so many different levels. You know, I think what happens when people have really many medical diagnoses, but psychi psychiatric would be kind of the most extreme, they really can become objectified. I mean, I've heard people with very early Alzheimer's say, I've done focus groups with very early diagnosed people. And they say things like, I was treated like a chair. I might as well have been a chair or like, you know, and I think sometimes doctors are the worst, you know, talking to Tony instead of looking at you directly, talking about- Giving Tony the- yeah, giving Tony the information sheets. It's like, Tony, give it to him, give it to me. And and something, oh, hang on, it's gone, but there was something that, um, oh, no, it'll come back. Keep, you, you keep talking and well, it'll come well, back actually, and then I'll tell you. Let, let's just run with, with, with that moment. Do you think there are any ongoing cognitive symptoms? Because as we've talked, you know, my job is to be a trained observer and you said a couple of things that made me think she is trying to keep herself on track because yeah. she can get her she can get a little tiny bit disorganized in her thinking and she has to kind of make sure she stays definitely absolutely and that for me is part of the residual stuff that i would love to have disappear with the rituximab yes. and i'm i'm hoping you know beyond hope that that i get it back it's stuff that i can I can function with and often only a professional like you would pick it up. Um, but I do definitely have um, memory issues. Now I tend to write things down a whole lot more. Yeah. You know, I've got my strategies to to combat it. Right. Um, so it doesn't get in the way. Um, and I've just thought of exactly what it was I wanted to tell you. I wanted to tell you that when I 
when I would go to the neurologist, I knew that the neurologist would would say, now, Bridie, I want you to remember these three things, the lamp, the curtains and the chair. So they would say that when I arrived and I would spend the rest (laughs) of the consult not hearing a word and repeating lamp curtains, you know, lamp curtains because because I was too scared to say to them, oh, no, I'm still a bit sick. I'm still a little bit sick. So I remember those things, so I'm actually perfect. You know, it just my my whole being was I I am well and you just need to help make me a bit better. Right. Yeah, rather than, rather than hey, I'm going to lay it out on the table and tell you that, that if I wasn't saying these things in my head over and over again, I wouldn't remember them. Right. You know, I probably, I mean, I would now, but but when I was crook, um, oh, sure. that was my strategy. My strategy was, you know, and it did me such a disservice, I realised. Uh, but, at, but at the time, you're kind of operating from survival, and I think you're kind of trying to claw your way into some empowerment, because in a way, right, your symptoms haven't been listened to. I mean, you're really, you've been really, you know, victimized by COVID in the sense of being, uh, the medical system became even more inaccessible to you just by simple scheduling and and demand, supply and demand. But but again, kind of what I'm hearing in your story is is maybe these two examples where the medical system didn't do what we like to think the medical system will do if we are ever in a really bad spot, which is really take care of us, get us a correct diagnosis and get us prompt treatment. Even, even more basic than that. um, Listen, listen for what's not there. Mm. That's what didn't happen. I, you know, I, I didn't feel like I was, truly listened to you know I when I went in when I went in with my paperwork that was I thought supporting the premise that you know maybe I did have this it it was you know it was taken politely but never never you know never really yeah never really read so how 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 does that inform the way you think about people who have psychiatric disorders now oh I am the most compassionate um I I it yeah it I I now I'm a little bit like you in that I listen for people's brain health and particularly the oldies in our life you know the people whose brains are really 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 just plain used up mm. you know I'm patient with them and I'm mm. you know and I'm not loud anymore I'm gentle and I'm you know oh my goodness it's it's made me and once again you know let's look at that silver lining because that would be it that would be it I needed to be taught this and I, I just got taught the hard way Wow. And, you know, when we think about kind of the trauma circle, the the way it ends is we take our very stressful experiences and apply those lessons learned so other people don't have quite as hard of a time of it. And, And you said when we first got on the call that, you know, part of what you've dedicated yourself now to doing is to promoting public awareness about this condition. Tell me what you do. Well, you know, I, I live in the country, so I actually don't do a lot. But but one thing I can show you—I mean, I didn't have it here for show until I promised. It's oh, my um, it's my it's my normal day-to-day calendar. Mm-hmm. Um, our on our at our little rural community, they create it's called the 
Surf Coast Community Arts Calendar. Oh, and part yeah. and part of my rehab was, um, you know, once again, sitting close to Tony so that he's not looking at his computer and he's playing his guitar or doing something that's not hurting me and I'm quietly doing watercolour painting, yeah? Oh, and and what I did was I, I mean, this is really the only thing I've done, but yeah. what I did was I made, I don't know if you can see it, but I, I made a just a watercolour painting that said, here's my month, it's actually more days than a month, but here's my month, and this is what I thought about each day as I recovered. Oh. And then and then you're allowed to put a little blurb there, and so and and I had to... I had to think very carefully about the blurb, but I, it says um, that it's Bride Bridie Murphy, so the people in our community know me, um, a work depicting the necessary one step at a time recovery from encephalitis. So it's just my way of saying, you know, I'm in your community. It, it took that, you know, and then it goes on to say the progress has been slow and steady it is a gift to be surrounded by all things Surf Coast. So, oh, you know, just, just knowing that in my community that I, you know, and I am, I'm very, very lucky to have had all the all the good friends and all the um, beautiful things, you know, and, and my lifestyle is is fabulous for recovery, a very, oh, very good God. for recovery. Um, uh, so it's things I, like I that. I'm just going to do it subtly. Oh, my gosh. Thank well, you, well, you also you. then are somebody who maybe has you know another one and one and a half million might have access to that tool to then give them some type of guidance i mean i think that's really where you come in is somebody wouldn't have to start at scratch you know do you do anything with social media on any you know chat rooms or oh rooms? yeah i sure do there's two fab fabulous nmda receptor encephalitis sites and um one is run by a woman called Christy, and and she is just a she, not just a she is a magnificent woman who you know I don't even know how how she just or why she decided to start this page, but she in initially was my absolute brains trust was my I would say Christy I'm you know this is happening to me while I'm on this drug what do you think and you know she would premise everything with. I'm not a doctor, but I have found this, this, and this. And she, you know, in the end, she's just my friend now. I mean, she's not. She doesn't know me. She doesn't know what I look like. But I call her, you know, she's right up there with the oncologists as far as I'm concerned because, nice. because there was no need for me to be, there was no need for me to say, you know, this is my story and, you know, or anything. She just she took took me on face value and would answer the questions mm. knowingly and and the same with your show. You know, your show's never done anything about NNDA encephalitis, but what it did for me was go, okay, I can take a breath and I can advocate for myself and mm. I can do it with my shoulders back yeah. and I can do it with an expectation that you know that that it's give and take that that you know mm -hmm. i can give and take and my and my my team my neurology team can also give and take and mm -hmm. you know I, I you know i can't say how important social oh. media and you being social media oh, has has God. been to me well you know yeah. when i think of how people get better from brain health challenges the the ideal would be a collaborative 
therapeutic team, right? And in my perfect world, we've got six slots on that team. We've got the neurologist, we've got our mental health professional, we've got family. So Tony, your girls, your sisters, friends, community of people who have been through it. You know, that's very important for, for me online and with my patients is I have not experienced some of these things yet. You know, some of the more universal brain challenges, anxiety, depression, sure. Uh, but, you know, I haven't had a stroke. I haven't been through something like this. So you have got to get in touch with your community because the truth is you deserve someone who has literally lived it. As much empathy as I might have for you, I just haven't lived it. And then I would say that final person on that care team is yourself, you really, and, 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 and I guess that was one of my questions for you that we haven't gotten to Bridie is, is kind of this idea of like picking up the pieces and kind of, where do you go from here? You know, like we had touched on this idea of medical PTSD and, you know, the more I've gotten to know you, like I said, you know, you came into all of this with a cancer diagnosis and cancer treatment for some people, that's all it takes to have that medical PTSD. Now you've got this incredible story of not just the actual medical condition, but uh, the thought, the thought, the 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 so, so if we could, so if, if you can envision this whole journey without the battle, how different would it have been? Oh my goodness. It would have been, it would have been absolutely, totally manageable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I do, I do you know, I, I do health well, or I do doctoring well. Yes. And so I trust my body, I trust that it will tolerate what they suggest, and that and that things will eventually work It might have been a long process. But but to picture the process without angst, um, mm. is, is, you know, you almost can't because, mm. because it's so it's so embedded in me now. But yeah, it would be lovely. And I think that that's why it's important that we do share it and that we do tell people about it because the more people that know, and and I made sure that the original psychiatrist has, you know, had sort of followed my journey. It's, I've done it very subtly so that she didn't feel picked on. But, um, you know, the more professionals and the more lay people that know, yes. um, you know, we'll just be put in better in better stead, I think. So before we get to your questions, you tell me as, as a brain health professional, what can I do better? If I, I kind of have two patients in mind. One is someone who's been diagnosed. We know exactly what this is. And then there's the person who comes to me, new onset psychosis, agitated, some cardiac, some, you know, the person who's not yet been diagnosed. What could I do better on the, the first person. So, so the person who comes to me, who's been through the infusions, who's had a relapse and, and, and they're, they're living with it today, still with some residual symptoms. How, how could a brain health doctor help? Um, there's a difference. There's a difference, Karen, between a brain health doctor and you. <laughs> um, you're, you've already got what it takes. You've already got that um, in the empathy that you know sometimes it's hard for you to find because you haven't been in their steps but but you're continually looking for it mm. and and i think that i think that sometimes the professionals just don't have that 
you know, and it's you know, it's almost not their fault because they're mm-hmm. so clever that their brain is filled with cleverness mm-hmm. and not with empathy. So, mm-hmm. you know, we also have to forgive them that, that, you know, sometimes people are, you know, are right-handed or left-handed and, and so... Oh, I, you know, I don't know the answer to your question. No, no, no. Yeah. And it might take a while to kind of wrap our heads around it together. I mean, I've thought about that question a lot and have tried to do some trainings with doctors. And, you know, my big thing is, is what we know patients want from us is really simple. It's competency and warmth and within warmth is an interest and a willingness to engage. A willingness to engage and also a good a good ability to listen, yes, and then and then an ability to to go out and research, yeah, you yeah, know, and and not yeah. just rely on yes. on what they know right. as the truth, right, yeah. right, yeah. perfect. And then and then what about you know the bridey who presented to the GP that day, very symptomatic, but very poorly understood, you know, what, what could a doctor do better than that? Yeah. And, and that then gets, gets all tied up in bureaucracy and money and medical money. And, And I know that, that I know that the, the, the battle in America is so much harder. Our, our health system is just so giving and mm. fabulous, but there is still a line. And and I think that that the doctors are continually juggling that line. And it's yeah. not like, oh, oh, this girl's a little bit crazy. Let's send her for an antibody test. I know that antibody test costs seven hundred dollars, right. and it doesn't. Nece- it doesn't in Australia. It doesn't necessarily cost it for the patient, right. but it's costing it for the system. So I think the system is embedded, or the the medicine that people practice is embedded in what they. In the in the constraints that they have, um, in in lots of different ways, like they've got a time constraint, they've 100%. got a cash constraint, they've got a you know like they've got you know yeah they've got a mindful just constraint. And, so and right and right, we might even say there's an empathy constraint. I mean, there is such a thing as as compassion fatigue, and how many people can you experience these cycles of grief and loss with where you, but, but, you know, I, I would say in, in my life's journey, I saw the writing on the wall for those organizational constraints and then made the decision to leave it and start my own practice because Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I take insurance, some practices in the U S don't. So I'm kind of one foot in one foot out. I am my own boss. I have my own clinic, but I still take government insurance. So I have to do some of the things they say, but I'm not beholden. I think one of the biggest downsides is for brain health patients is the time constraint. You know, this idea that a follow-up is, you know, 10 minutes on average here. Um, But, but I do believe that when you take an oath to take care of people with a brain health challenge, you really have to accept that it is different. This is not the same body system as a kneecap or a toenail. This is the organ of the self. And that dictates a different responsibility. Mm, and thank you thank you thank you thank you (laughs) you are operating at the intersection of 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 the core of of who that person is hardwired and spiritual 
And, and it requires more time, more patience, more listening, more education, more closer follow-ups. And maybe the most important thing to me is to not over-medicalize the problem. Yes, we are doctors, but we're treating human beings. And so to yeah. me, what I always want to try to get people to do is to just ask the questions of how are you coping? How are you adjusting to, to, I mean, your husband has been through the ringer with this, right? Has, has any one of your doctors asked him to come in for a few minutes on his own so they could check in with him to see how he's doing? It, it was interesting. They actually, I actually at one point asked for a, um, a psychologist or psychiatrist to help me with this balance of reality and not reality mm -hmm. and and these two fellows I'm not sure what what their credentials were um, but they arrived and to be honest I don't know what was happening in the background at this point they might have had a phone call from Tony or they might you know I really don't know and I've never I've never covered it with him but they arrived at our house and we all sat outside because it was COVID on the outside table and and they they spent most of the time addressing tone they they sort of asked me questions and got that I was still still a bit busy I think mm -hmm. and then they turned to tone and they did ask him and they ended up giving him like his own cat team number so if he had a problem and and Treading back, early, early, early days, Tony rang Lifeline. So Tony actually got to the point in the middle of the night when I was wide awake doing paperwork and running around the house, mm -hmm. he didn't know what to do. So he rang Lifeline. Now the phone call was only something like 30 seconds because he thought to himself, how's Lifeline going to help me? You know, I'm, I've got, <laughs> but, I've got you know, this woman. And, but you're, you know, you're but really piquing my interest about how brain health conditions are managed by different healthcare systems and different cultures, because I can tell you that that is more resources than I know people get in the US. Wow. And, and, and wow. Right. I mean, and so that's, that's incredible. So I'm so grateful that someone was able to come and address his experience as the spouse, because my experience is that's almost a ignored part of the journey. It's, it's really, really, it's really, really tough. So Bridie, please um, repeat those questions that you sent to me, which were kind of how do I manage these ongoing symptoms of psychosis um, so we can get into that. Um, do you remember I, what I you wrote? I don't remember what I wrote. <laughs> I don't have a copy of it because it went straight to you. Yes. Um, but I imagine, and, and, and I think I know the answer already, that's the truth, but I imagine it was something like, um, please, please give me any intel that you have on how I manage the um, underlying suspicion and the you know, just just feeling like I always have to yeah. second guess and look at what Tony's doing. Um, you know, is I, I, you know, no, it's, but it's I like a that's absolutely accurate. And then and then the poignant piece that I thought was so important for us to talk about is you said, "Am I essentially 
reducing my risk of a full recovery if I continue to quote give in to these symptoms. If I kind okay. of yeah, energy, right. And so I I really wanted to be able to talk about that because I to me that's one of those kind of trauma cognitive distortions. And I think you're just trying to take care of yourself and you're just trying to be um, self-preserving and make sure you're doing everything to help yourself. But I think it is also one of those feelings like we give ourselves more perceived control than we maybe really have, meaning like, how can I muck this up myself when really the truth of the matter is this is an extremely neurobiological process that the Mm -hmm. only thing, the only way you can possibly influence it is by really not focusing on intensive stress management, right? That is the only thing in the literature that I could find that had to do with, um, I mean, I just think it's, it's totally out of your control, the reason it starts and why it happens. And then the way your body responds to the first and second line medications is really out of your control. It's just the way your brain responds to it. And I don't think that you can do anything other than to help yourself sleep well, keep stress low, you know, social engagement, stay on a schedule, eat high protein, low sugar, be good with hydration. I don't think your thoughts or, or giving into the thoughts or overcoming the thoughts is really going to make any difference at all. I think though, what you can do is that piece of mindfulness to slow down and really figure out what is that initial tipping point, which it sounds like you've done that work to know for you, there's some cardiac symptoms that happen. And then you sound like you do a perfect job already of communicating that to your trusting partner and that you have a, a basically like a team in place under you that once you tell them you're having that symptom, there's a procedure in place for getting in touch with the doctors. Yeah. Yep, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Um, that is that that's very reassuring on one point and very disappointing on another. Because <laughs> you would love a little bit of control, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I'm not I'm not done yet. So Okay, okay. There's two different um specialty types of psychotherapy that could specifically help you. So within the world of cognitive behavioral therapy we then get further specialization. So, you know, we call it CBT. We have CBT I for insomnia and there's CBT P for psychosis. So there is a very specific manualized treatment. And basically the idea is that they really try to help reduce the distress and the disability that comes along with chronic symptoms of psychosis. So that idea is early identification. And then they try to teach you the three C's. Okay. So the first one is to catch it. So how do you catch the first wave of the psychosis? Right. And you, you do that already. We don't, the next thing they encourage people to do is check it, which is kind of reality testing, right? So you go to Tony and you say, look, my brain is telling me that maybe you're talking to someone on the internet. And so you actually challenge the thought. You don't keep it to yourself because that's gonna make it fester. You go directly and you check it out. And then the third one, the third C is is to change it, 
which is really hard when the thought distortion is coming from such a strong yeah. biological problem. And, and, and that's where, where you try to take that paranoid, suspicious thought and, and you basically try to outsmart it with a lot of frontal lobe functioning, a lot of reassurance. I've thought this before and it wasn't true. Maybe this is my disease speaking. Maybe it's my disorder speaking. Really try to challenge the thought in order to yep. make it make it more adaptive. And then the second one is called ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy. And what that would tell you to do is to try to diffuse, this one is pretty tough, but diffuse the symptom from yourself. Now, this is fascinating as it relates to the brain. And in fact, there's a subspecialty called NeuroACT that is using the principles of acceptance and commitment therapy with folks who have a brain health challenge specifically because y'all probably need it more than anyone because the brain and the self are just so intertwined. But the idea with, with their approach is basically you try to live your value. Your values are in the driver's seat, not the symptoms. That's lovely. I love that. Right? Yep. 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 So, so the idea is like, what would you say, Bridie, are the, the two most important things in your life? Uh, uh, Without any doubt at all, oh, but I will offend, um, Tony and my grandchildren. Yes, right, right. <laughs> and so so you when you make decisions, you want to think, how does this serve and honor Tony and serve mm. and honor my grandchildren? Is, mm. is, is kind of opening up this suspicious line of thinking, is that based in the helpful? belief that I know is true. I know my husband loves me. I know he is trustworthy. I know he is faithful, but yet it's just like I have a broken bone and I x-ray it and I see the fracture. Your specific issue is these antibodies start running loose. They get in the emotional center of your brain and you start to have symptoms. So really, I think the diffusion techniques from ACT really trying to separate, is this myself thinking this, or is this my injured brain thinking this? It's very subtle, but I think if you could find an ACT therapist, and you know that's again, another benefit of social media becoming so um, easily accessible is maybe you could even find someone online who could try to help you really dig into those concepts a little bit more. Because I think on Fabulous. first, I think on first pass, Bridie, it feels a little bit like, yeah, like it's it's a little too, um, it's simplistic and almost too complex at the same time. But I think it's the kind of thing if you could work on with a trusted therapist, you could kind of milk it, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, if it made ten percent difference, it would be That's helpful. Right. That's right. Yeah, it just, you know, little steps. I'm happy to take little That's steps. Right. And and what you've just described in the last five minutes, I'd never heard of. So that's, oh, you know, look that's, at that. that's a okay. gift. Good. That's a gift. Good. And then, and then uh, you know, I've got pages here of my little research I did for you. The only other thing on my list of things I wanted to, to talk to you about is this whole idea. There's something called the stress vulnerability model of psychosis. And basically, mm -hmm. it means that the relationship between stress and psychotic symptoms like paranoia is bi-directional. 
So the more psychotic symptoms you have, meaning the more suspicious or paranoid you get, right? We would kind of put that in the classification of a delusion, right? Yep. Right. Yep. That that you get stressed out when that happens, but vice versa, the more stressed you get, the more likely you are to experience the symptoms. So that's why I say it's your self-care and your stress management is really the most important thing in this journey to me. Wow. The most important thing you have control over to try to, to work this autoimmune condition back into stability is, is really prioritizing high quality, continuous sleep, high quality engagement during the daytime. Um, exposure to early morning sunlight is coming out more and more as very important for the brain. So uh, hey, that, 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 that just sounds like a walk in the morning, doesn't right, it? Right, exactly. And not wearing yeah. sunglasses. So the idea is you actually want the sun's rays coming into your eyes. The eyes are an extension of the brain. And that's- Oh, no- I knew that. I knew that. Isn't that because, fascinating? Because I had, I had photophobic. I had, I couldn't, I really, when I was really, really sick, I, I you know, I just had to keep my eyes shut. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. I wow. yeah. And then I would say, you know, um, uh, really um, respecting the power of distraction too. So maybe once you realize you're having symptoms, the key is to then really as much as you can not give into them in quotes, like, so maybe you can have a deal with Tony, you know, when I tell you that that's when we need to go for a walk, that's when I need to go to a coloring book or listen to music or just not stay susceptible to it and try to try to move my yeah. to a different place. Yeah. Yep. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what, what I'm also hearing is that, is that instead of thinking that I'm doing um, everybody a favor by not, not bringing up the illness, not addressing it in any way and just doing my little hiding stuff, I think I would probably do more of a favor and and potentially risk, you know, risk it being uncomfortable for tone, but but for my well-being be more honest and more upfront and say, okay, you know, I need I need a bit bit more help here, you know, please will you manage help me manage it by doing this, you know, whereas before I've been sort of hiding it, you know, just yeah, I know. Yeah. It's, it's kind of hard too because I I know you're motivated to hide it because they've already been through so much and you don't want to put them. And again, this is kind of one of those, you know, not to perseverate on medical post traumatic stress, but I just think it's such a common yet under recognized part of a brain health challenge. Part of and and trauma has so many different forms, but it affects us in basically the same ways. You know, it changes the way we view the world ourselves or in the case of our brain health community, the the safety we feel within our own brain. And so when I think our core safety feels threatened, the worst thing we would ever do would be to threaten someone else. So there's this yeah, feeling, yeah you don't yeah, right. You don't want to, but but you know, maybe there's yeah. also some opportunity for family healing two, you know, a good family therapist would be able in just a couple sessions to let everyone kind of speak their piece. You know, Tony, what was that like for you? And, and now it's, it's funny that you should say that, um, because Karen, I, 
I think two or two years in um, for our wedding anniversary, I organised Pam, the um, the relationship counsellor. We're once again we're in the middle of another COVID thing and we're all locked down. But she offered, or she was happy to do it via Skype. Um, I asked her if she would do a session, and this time, instead of looking at the horror of it, would would she please do something that uh, that rejoiced in our many years of marriage together and our relationship? And it was just beautiful. It was absolutely, yeah. So so yeah, a little bit more of that. Well, you're so you're so intuitively wise about all of this. I mean, you have impressed me beyond belief with your advocacy with your empowerment with your sensitivity and and also your your real commitment to wanting to kind of figure all this out and and I think the trajectory is towards helping other people in their journey I really do I mean I just that's the full circle of trauma no matter what it is right heart attack brain tumor you know this experience it's it's you know, you'll be the Cindy to the next group of people that come along, right? Is Cindy, okay. is, is that the woman's name that you met online? What's her name that you said before? You oh, said, Christy. Christy. Christy, you're going to be Christy yeah. to someone else. Yeah, yeah. You know well, what I, I, mean? I, I Yeah, I hope I can um, do as well as she did for me, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what I would love to is, you know, once we have this all packaged together, I, you know, I'm trying to really think creatively about how I'm going to edit it and stuff is by all means, like let's together try to get it out to your community. Because what we talk about here is what hundreds and thousands of other people need to be talking about and be you, yeah. what you've really provided today, Bridie is an exemplary example of the journey i mean you have had a lot of suffering but what you have done with what you have been given is just really just bravo i mean just so so moving it's so moving how how good is your timing how good is your timing step in this door for me and it's like i'm walking on in here well right the question though is right is it my timing or what is going on here in the universe because when i decided to do this what I really put out in my mind was the right people will come and these stories will be illuminating for other people who don't have don't have access to an expert but also don't maybe have some of the resources that you had and what you had Bridie was an incredible husband an amazing family but also the intelligence the stick-to-itiveness and really the, the 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 desire to persevere in your soul. That's what yep. is giving you yep. the good outcome. Not that you're yep. totally out of the woods, but I often weep for people who don't have it within them to stand up for themselves. They don't have a tone. Yeah. That kills. Yeah, they don't have a time. Right. They they don't have a they don't have a you know a brain doctor who cares, and so you know, I'm just one person trying to do my thing in my corner of the world. But but these conversations, my 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 soul's desire is that they get out there in the world and they help so many more people than I could ever help individually. Right? If people can overhear a respectful. Uh, empowered conversation, then then their journey won't be as hard. 
Oh, thank you, Karen. Thank yes. you. Let, yeah, let's hope. Well done. Well done. Oh, I loved it. I and loved now, every minute. And now it's dinner time for you. Get there. Okay, Get well, there, listen. Fill your tummy. Let's do a follow-up after you have the next treatment because I want to hear how it's going. Okay, love to. Okay. Love to. I'll get on I'll get on to Carrie. Is it Carrie? I'll yes. get on to yes. Carrie. Yes. And um and and put you put you in the loop. Oh. I just you know, I know you so well. You don't know me at all. I know <laughs> you so well from listening to you for years and suddenly oh. you've just walked into my living room. I just I love it. Mwah. Thank you. Well, you're so wonderful. And just thank you so much. It means so much to be the first guest on this adventure. And I don't think we could have picked a better person. So thanks a million. <laughs>